Hello and welcome to Team West Covina, a crazy ex-girlfriend podcast. I'm your host, Paisley, and today is Monday, January 1st, 2018. First day of the new year and my first podcast. So this is episode one of the podcast. And today we're going to be discussing the episode, Josh Just Happens to Live Here. It's season one, episode one. It aired on October 12th, 2015. It was written by Rachel Bloom and Aline Rosh McKenna and directed by Mark Webb, who also directed 500 Days of Summer and is an executive producer on Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. The Netflix synopsis says, despite her success, Rebecca realizes she's not happy in New York and decides to follow her ex-boyfriend, Josh, to West Covina, California. Be forewarned, this is designed to be more of an analysis, so we will be looking at upcoming seasons as well. Uh, there will always be lots of spoilers. Um, so to begin, um, I love how the camera focuses on this pretty blonde girl as the lead in the play. She is singing really well, and then it shifts to highlight Rebecca Bunch with her freckles, braids, and her retainer, singing off-key in a supporting role at Camp Canyon Grove in the year 2005. Um, funnily enough, in the commentary, Rachel Bloom says that's her real retainer. She seems very proud of it. Um, I'm wondering how much does she transpose or project the musical of South Pacific onto her teenage relationship with Josh? Um, you know, they're singing, I'm in love with a wonderful guy. And how much does she think, oh, my life is like this. And, um, you know, we're going to go waltz into the sunset together. And uh, you, you see how much she internalizes musicals. And uh, the juxtaposition of those two things is really interesting to me. Um, it is nice to see her so happy. Uh, we don't get to see her that happy uh, too often. So I think they do a great job of making both Rachel and Vincent Rodriguez III look young here. They're surprisingly convincing. She's in a tropical parrot shirt and jeans. He's in a hooded sweatshirt, a backwards baseball cap, and a camouflage backpack. I was kind of wondering why camouflage when I saw it at first. Kind of makes me think military or G.I. Joe but from a distance, it looks like there's an Asian dragon on the back or something like that. Josh is in his familiar cargo shorts and flip-flops, so clearly he doesn't really change very much. On the commentary, they mention that it's shot in Griffith Park, um, very near to the studios. And there's so much background information about 16-year-old Rebecca's life as she rambles to Josh. Um, she says, it was a bummer that my mom didn't show, but in that moment, it felt, it was like everyone was my mom. So already you can see her mom disappointing her and not showing up for or acknowledging important moments like Rebecca's love of theater. Um, she says, she's just pissed that I didn't do the mock trial intensive. She wasn't even going to let me go here, but then I called my dad on his honeymoon in the Bahamas and I told him I was having suicidal thoughts. So ta-da, here I am. Already you can see that her mom is grooming her for the law and that Rebecca has interests that matter to her more. She could have chosen mock trials, but she chose to go to camp and be in a musical. Um, you can also see Rebecca play her dad against her mom when her mom is probably already feeling extra annoyed with him 
because it looks like Silas got married to someone else when Rebecca was 16 years old. Um, it might not have been for the first time. I think he's been married more than once um, uh, after Rebecca's mom, but it is a big deal either way. Um, you can see Rebecca interrupt her dad's honeymoon in part to get what she wants, attending camp, but also likely for his attention when it's probably captivated by his current bride. Rebecca likely already associates a bride as someone deserving of her father's attention, someone who can catch and keep a man's attention in general. She spends two seasons of the show aiming to become Josh's bride. Uh, she, you also hear her mention the suicidal thoughts here. She's using them here to get what she wants, camp, and it clearly worked but it's possible she was genuinely having them as well, considering her history. Rebecca's equating suicide with attention, however subconsciously. Suicidal thoughts get her dad's attention enough for her to be rewarded with camp. So that is kind of an interesting association for her to make. It's brilliant that as early as the first minute of the TV show, Rebecca's suicidal thoughts have already been mentioned. Knowing now that she attempts suicide in third season and had one suicide attempt before that, these random comments have a much deeper meaning. Josh, uh, by the way, already looks completely overwhelmed here. Uh, he doesn't know what to do with her and all of her thoughts bouncing off the walls. And, um, she, you know, he, he's just not really equipped to handle these heavy issues. She also says to him, you've awakened my sexual being for the first time. It implies that he may have been her first, the guy she lost her virginity to, which may make Josh all the more important to her. It is a little ambiguous whether this means sex itself or other sexual acts. We know Rebecca isn't Josh's first though. He was with Valencia before that. Um, so you can definitely see that he had a major impact on her. 16 is really young, so all of that affects you even more. Um, Rebecca says, I never knew that two people could be so connected. And you can hear Josh sigh softly here. He looks so uncomfortable and he's so quiet as Rebecca's expressing herself. She seems oblivious, but when the girl in question isn't oblivious, it's even more painful for her to already be with someone who isn't responding in kind, despite the fact that the two of them are together. I definitely sympathize with Rebecca straight off the bat. She's running her hands down the ties in Josh's hoodie. She's putting her palm on his shoulder, those little touches that indicate her interest and desire for intimacy. Rebecca then says, okay, let's talk schedules. I'll visit at Christmas. Um, I think some people may interpret Rebecca as being too eager here, but when you're already a couple for two months who have been doing sexual things, it's fair for Rebecca to want to start planning with Josh, in my opinion. To think that they got sexual at 16 for a couple months and then he just dumped her, that can be pretty traumatic, especially with how attached she is to him. Josh may have just used her for sexual stuff and then dropped her. I, you know, she, she could have felt pretty used, but it kind of just made her feel more attached to him. She, Rebecca says, this has been the best summer of my life and you're the reason why. Dr. Ecopian might say that Rebecca named Josh as the reason for her happiness. 
and questioned whether it wasn't taking part in theater that actually made her feel confident and happy during this time. The two things coincided along with Rebecca's temporary independence from her mother. So all those things together, I think, really do it for her. Um, it's so rare for her to have all those things at once. Um, I don't think this is the case for everyone um, in terms of it being something other than Josh. For many people, I think the person in question really is the reason why they're happy. But the way CXG portrays it, Rebecca is motivated by theater as well as the idea of being normal. Though the main reason she seems to want to be normal is for um, like a sense of belonging and to ascend from her depression, anxiety, all her other psychological issues. Josh represents normal to her and she believes being normal would give her what she truly wants. So in Dr. Copian's mind, that's the true drive for Rebecca, however indirect. She wants to escape her mental health problems, feel like she belongs and has found a tribe. Josh, meanwhile, says, I just think we're really different. Like, you're really dramatic and, like, weird. He says, I don't know, maybe we should take a break. Uh, you know, it's classic Josh that he's too cowardly to even say break up. He literally says, take a break, like it's temporary. And he only talks to Rebecca about this after his mom and dad have already arrived. So there's no time to truly talk about it. It's very rushed so he can make his escape. Uh, that's really common. <laughs> you see that all the time. Um, so Rebecca doesn't really have a whole lot of closure here um, from the beginning. So having to go through that again after he abandoned her at their wedding and went completely silent with no explanation, it really must feel like history repeating itself, reinforcing that Josh seems to think she's not good enough. He does directly break up with her here. Um, despite all the other concerns, he says it to her directly. He makes it clear. She does uh, move on for uh, a number of years. Um, which is actually better than he can do after the wedding or lack thereof. And so, it, you know, obviously the stakes are higher then, but at least here he's being direct and not saying anything at all uh, is a lot different. I, I feel like it's a lot worse than, than this. Uh, Rebecca says, but I love you. And he says, thanks for that. Um, what I was wondering when I saw that is, is this the first time she said I love you to him? She says it as if she said it before, as if it isn't even a question and he's being unreasonable and bizarre. So I'm wondering, has Josh said it to Rebecca before this? We don't really know. Um, it's definitely a little unclear. I don't know if he would have said it to her in the moment and let her on or if Rebecca was just kind of assuming that they were in love and that saying it is stating the obvious, that's entirely possible. In the commentary that Rebecca, or I'm sorry, that Rachel and Aline Brush McKenna do on, on episode one, they tried to tell us a dirty line of Rebecca's that they had a cut for the CW, but they even peep it out in the commentary. It's something about Rebecca saying, I love, and um, 
later on in the commentary, Rachel and Aline said they were told that they couldn't curse. So stuff that they said in the beginning might be bleeped out. And it was, there was all kinds of stuff they said in the beginning that was bleeped out. Um, so maybe at, at some other point they said it, uh, but right now I, I'm not sure what that line would have been. Uh, I really hope we get to see the Showtime pilot at some point. The mom in the car in the pilot uh, is not Tova. If you look really carefully um, when Rebecca's in the car, you can catch a glimpse of the original mom. Um, Tova, the actress who plays Rebecca's mom, she was cast late. Uh, it is, however, Tova's distinctive voice. Immediately, Naomi swears at her daughter and asks if there's a hickey on her neck. If anything happens, we can go right to the abortionist, she says. Nothing is going to ruin your future and your career. Um, I think I missed some of that line the first time around. It, that That's pretty extreme. I'm kind of wondering if Naomi, you know, did Naomi feel like having Rebecca aborted her career? What was she doing before that? Um, is she trying to live through Rebecca? Or is she trying to prevent the same thing from happening to her? Um, does Naomi re resent Rebecca or Silas um, if she got pregnant too early? You know, you wonder what's driving her. Is it just that she wants the best for Rebecca's future? Or, um, you know, that she sees having a career as being more stable than having a man after her own experiences? Uh, we really don't know. So then we cut to 10 years later, um, and in regards to getting a certain law case, Naomi says, I'm sure you told your father and that whore at Tucker's seventh birthday party. Um, here, Naomi is still actively, visibly bitter, angry at Silas and his wife or girlfriend. Um, whether this is the same one as the bride he married when Rebecca was 16, we don't know for sure. Whether Tucker is Silas's kid or just his partner's kid is unclear. I forget if, if we find out later. Um, but Silas is apparently parenting a different child who's not Rebecca. It's also incredibly surprising that Naomi implies Rebecca attended Tucker's seventh birthday party. So that means that she saw her dad recently, uh, most likely, but watched him parent this kid firsthand. Uh, I'm wondering if this contradicts later episodes. I feel like there was something the wedding dance instructor said, like he asks if Rebecca had memories with, you know, her dad. Um, and I feel like they say they haven't seen each other in a really long time or something like that. Um, I, I, it seems like, it, you know, it's always very rare for him to, for her to see him, but I, I didn't catch the whole Tuck, Tucker birthday party line until, you know, a rewatch. Naomi also says on the phone, she says, today the dermatologist is telling me if it's cancer. So either she's being overdramatic, indicating that she and Rebecca are more alike in some ways than they think, or Rebecca isn't actually that concerned about her mother's diagnosis, uh, which is actually brought up in third season when she sings, for once, I don't want her to have a cancerous mole, uh, and maybe she's not such a heinous bitch after all. What Rebecca is actually doing as she listens to her mother's message is closing down web pages she'd been browsing. Uh, you see web date ring with her own profile, Rebecca44. Uh, how much sleep deprivation can we survive? She had Googled, how long can a person go without sleep? 
and 100 people who died during sex. Uh, in the Showtime pilot, uh, those websites were porn instead, and uh, Elaine says they had to literally film a fake porno, which is doubly hilarious when you think about season three, episode one. Uh, she, Elaine says she spent a lot of time on that. Um, when you look at Rebecca's apartment too, I mean, it's really obvious. It's stark and bare. You've got the blank white walls, white nightstand, white bedspread, hardwood floors, barely any furniture. She lives in downtown New York with skyscrapers out the window, um, but she's got like a backpack and clothes all over the floor. Despite the lack of furnishings, she's not neat or organized with her belongings. She's got a bottle of wine and a glass poured. In the Showtime pilot, there was apparently a vibrator on the nightstand. Um, I also noticed uh, one of the things that I like to do when I go back and, and rewatch episodes is kind of pick out what's going on in different scenes, you know, little things that you might not notice on a first watch. Um, I noticed there was gabapentin, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but gabapentin medication on her nightstand. It does have her name on it, so it was intentional. Um, online it says gabapentin is used to help control partial seizures, convulsions, in the treatment of epilepsy that affects chemicals and nerves in the body that are involved in the cause of seizures. Gabapentin is used in adults to treat uh, neuropathic pain, nerve pain caused by herpes virus or shingles. So I'm kind of wondering, you know, which of these things does Rebecca have? Why is she taking it? Um, it, it sort of seemed out of left field. I, I, you know, didn't associate any of those things with her directly you kind of expect it to be anxiety or depression medication, something like that. So I, I was kind of surprised that it was something else. Um, so I don't know if that will ever come back later, but it was there. And this is the point when we see the butter commercial. Uh, what are you waiting for? Spread it, indulge, ask yourself, when was the last time you were truly happy? And in the commentary when Rebecca, or I'm sorry, when Rachel, uh, is talking about the next scene where she's in the law for, firm and uh, she uh, the there's a woman that comes up to her and tells her she made partner that's her friend dominique from college in real life uh, who apparently actually auditioned and aline picked her without knowing she was rachel's friend so she was really excited to get the part um on getting promoted to partner rebecca says this is objectively fantastic like on paper fantastic right it's kind of the same thing you might say about a date. He was great on paper, but there was no connection, no spark. Uh, she also sees the butter ad on someone's desk, a print version this time. And so after she hears this news, Rebecca's running outside, having a panic attack. Uh, and she's telling herself, this is great. I'm so happy. Mom's going to be so happy. This is what happy feels like. Happy just feels great and amazing. What's wrong with you? Um, she's having a total anxiety attack, um, thinking it's supposed to make a ha her happy and it doesn't. And it really stresses her out. Um, and I think that that kind of moment is so so frustrating because normally when this happens, it's something that you've worked for or worked towards for a long time and you've put blood, sweat and tears into it. It's maybe not the easiest thing to accomplish. It might be rare for someone to get it. And then when you get it and you're not happy and you might even be stressed or nervous or something, it's just so disappointing. It's like everything comes crashing down. You're like, 
okay, if everything I worked for is meaningless or, or not going to make me happy, where do I go from here? Do I have to start all over? Um, what if I'm wrong about the next thing? Uh, it, it's definitely a tough moment. I, I think it, you know, it makes her question her entire life, basically. Um, I love that she says, dear God, I don't pray to you because I believe in science. You see, she's, uh, she's either an atheist or an agnostic. Uh, yet immediately after that, when Rebecca looks up, sees the butter ad on a billboard and the arrow points to Josh Chan in the sunlight, um, you know, it, it is kind of like directly after her prayer, she sees this happen and she kind of equates the two. Um, and her brain also immediately associates the I'm in love with a wonderful guy song with Josh, uh, her time at camp and performing in the South Pacific musical. Um, the associations between these things are deeply entrenched even 10 years later. The second she sees him, she hears the line to the song again. Uh, and that's so true. I mean, that music can take you right back to a certain time in your life. Um, and all those feelings kind of come rushing back up for Rebecca. And when Rebecca talks to Josh, uh, he says she didn't come back to camp the next summer. She did mock trial like her mom wanted. Uh, she definitely would have tried to come back to camp if Josh hadn't dumped her. Uh, but apparently the fact that he dumped her took precedence over her being in plays or musicals or else her mom just refused to let her go. Josh may have impacted Rebecca's pursuit of the dramatic arts to some degree. Although when it's a place he's not in, she does continue to pursue theater such as in college. Uh, but it seems like him breaking up with her was a big reason she didn't go back to camp unless her mom just disallowed it. Josh says we had such a good time that summer. This right from the start, it was like sweet, but it was kind of annoying because it's totally glossed over in his memory. Um, he's welcoming and generally glad to see her, which is nice on the surface, but he is also completely forgetting how much he hurt her. In his mind, it was like, oh, you know, this was a great summer. And in her mind, it was like this huge heartbreak and something that really upset her for a long time. Um, we find out that Josh has been living in New York for the last eight months. And he says to Rebecca, why get stuck in a rat race at home? It's so chill and so relaxed out there. Everyone is you know, like happy. Uh, well, this impacts Rebecca. It's obviously not true. It's really just Josh's perspective on things. I would say Josh Chan and white Josh do seem pretty happy when we meet them. Um, but Greg obviously isn't. Valencia always seems upset about something when we first meet her. We now know that Kevin at the bar is faking it. Um, probably Josh's family is pretty happy though. So overall, this is his impression of West Covina. Josh also tends to project what he's feeling onto other people. So if he's happy, he assumes other people are too without giving much thought to their actual perspectives. Josh says West Covina is only two hours from the beach, four in traffic, providing the optimistic glass half full perspective well, later, Greg says, we're four hours from the beach. Some people say two, but those people are dumb. Um, Daryl also references this and saying there, um, he says they're only two hours from the beach. Well, four in traffic in the same optimistic manner as Josh. 
And Rebecca in the West Covina song says, only two hours from the beach without even clarifying. I, I think that this kind of represents the way they see the world. Um, Josh and Daryl are pretty optimistic. Um, Greg is very pessimistic. And Rebecca is almost to the point of, um, you know, being under an illusion. She, she's seeing all this shiny positivity without necessarily being able to see the way things really are. Um, you, you do have to sympathize with her hopefulness though. You know, she really wants everything to go well. You learn here that Josh says he likes to get beers with his buds and skateboards. So, you know, maybe not the best or highest qualifications for a boyfriend. He seems pretty, you know, pretty average uh, SoCal guy. Um, he also says to Rebecca, man, if I had known you turn out to be so successful and hot, let a good one get away, huh? Rebecca is flattered by this, but it really rubbed me the wrong way. It is flattering and vindicating, which helps, but at the same time, it implies that Josh didn't rec recognize the value in what he had. And seeing what Rebecca grew into, he has a little regret that he let her go. Uh, Josh Caesar is the one that got away and that drives up her value to him. Successful and hot are girlfriend trophy points for the boyfriend. It's something that benefits him, helps him look good to others, which implies Josh might have a tendency to see Rebecca a little more like an object than a person, even if that's not his entire perspective. He sees where you'd get trophy points for being with, with her. We don't actually see what's on Josh's business card. Supposedly it says what he does in New York. Um, for some reason, I thought, I, I've heard people say online that we did see the business card at one point. I, I thought they'd seen the business card, seen what he does, um, and that there was an actual job on it. But as far as I can tell, we don't see it. I don't know if maybe there was a prop picture or something. Rachel and Aline's commentary says that Josh worked for a convention center. But I, I do think that there were some people online who had a different impression, I believe from the business card itself. So I'm not sure who's misremembering, but um, it's either that or I think he might have, I don't know if they said he was a travel agent. It was something like that. There were two different potential jobs that Josh was doing in New York, because that was the question of everybody's mind, you know, what is he doing in New York? What is he qualified to do? Rebecca had to get him the job at Aloha Tech, so how did he manage this? Um, but according to Aline, he worked for a convention center, which I can see, um, and it kind of makes sense, because you do see, like, um, later at Aloha Tech, he's doing the sound, he's bringing the sound in for Electric Mesa and that kind of thing, so... Okay, so back to uh, Rebecca's law firm. They, they basically say to her, you work 24 seven, you've never taken a sick day. We know that this job is your whole world. And I think when she hears that, you know, her work sees this as really positive and Rebecca's hearing this and it's like sinking into her like, yeah, it is my whole world. This is all I have. Um, and I love her line when she's telling them about where she's gonna go. It's where dreams live. I love that. She looks so excited and, um, you know, she, she's, in her view, she's freeing herself. So a lot of people question 
or rather judge her for moving across the country for a guy, um, which obviously is problematic because if you do, especially when you're not committed or you don't even know if you really have a shot with him, it, your whole world can come crashing down if, if he's not with you. But beyond that, it, it does kind of seem like Rebecca's, you know, she's so unhappy in New York, moving in general, um, not necessarily for a guy, but moving to a new place, trying something different. I mean, that really, you know, I, I don't blame her for doing that because she's not really missing anything. She's making a lot of money, but she's miserable. So to move and try something different, especially because she, she already has a job there. She knows she's going to a job. She's not just going to sit and be unemployed. Um, I do think that's, you know, like a brave and admiral thing in general when you're not just doing it for a guy. Um, you know, why not? She, she's, she doesn't really have much that she's leaving behind. And, you know, looking for happiness in general is a, is a noble cause. So, um, you see Rebecca do a little spin as she leaves, and uh, then she launches into her musical number, West Covina. She tosses the blazer, and the guy who catches it, David, is her friend, and he's also a magician, uh, like Josh Chan and Vincent Rodriguez III. And uh, her friend David later catches her jacket again um, during a musical number in season three. So there's all these nice little tie-ins. So then we have the iconic moment when she sings, I'm hopelessly, desperately in love with. And the focus on the camera shifts to make viewers notice that her head's blocking the Joe's fish sign, making it read Josh. Uh, I really liked that moment. Um, even the way they film it, where the focus goes in and out and you, you notice what's behind her. Uh, it was so well done. And then in the M&M market stock shot, you actually see a different version of the butter ad on a billboard. Uh, and then the same billboard by the adult stores. And this time it says, your future is in your hands and on the edge of your knife. When Rebecca arrives in West Covina, her hair goes from straight to curled. She's wearing bright pink lipstick as opposed to no lipstick. And while her dress remains the same color blue, instead of being a straight A-line skirt, it becomes twirly with sparkles on it. She goes from sedate black heels to silver sparkly heels. Uh, they do a really good job. Um, the costume designer uh, really pays attention to that, that symbolism. And uh, there's all kinds of little things to notice with that. And when we're in the middle of the West Covina number, uh, we immediately see a guy spray painting graffiti. We see adult stores, um, you know, all this really ironic stuff. Um, she's singing, it's all new, but I have no fear. And right after that, there's an interruption of accidentes, which I always kind of saw as kind of a, a warning, <laughs> you know. She has no fear, but should she have fear? Probably. And then they address that again, um, when Paula sings Face Your Fears, they they are just going charging in kind of, and um, it's admirable because it's hard to do that, but they're not always thinking about the consequences. Uh, this is another thing that kind of goes back to Rebecca being a secret Gryffindor, which I'll address later, a lot later when we get to the Hogwarts houses part, but um, she, she really does have that tendency to kind of uh, do something really brave and, and a little reckless. And 
she takes action, you know, and, and not everybody does. So for better or worse, that that's definitely an interesting quality. We find out that Rebecca lives at 1496 McCabe Way. The sign in the stop says for lease. Um, so she was leasing as opposed to buying. And, and then underneath it says, West Covina's number one realtor, uh, Muller and Hernandez, exclusive agent, well-approved townhouse. She has one bedroom, laundry, and new appliances. But the thing I noticed most about that sign is Hernandez. Uh, is this Mrs. Hernandez's husband or relation? Uh, yes, it's a common name for sure, but the show is so conscious of these things. Uh, it definitely makes me wonder, did she, uh, did she lease her house from one of Mrs. Hernandez's relatives? It's a woman who shows her around the apartment, but we don't really know if it's Muller Hernandez or someone who works for them. So yeah, headcanon, I'd kind of like to think that it was maybe uh, Mrs. Hernandez's husband uh, who owns the company. Uh, when she's in the part in the song where, the, where all the dancers are behind her, uh, Aline says that they cast the dancers to reflect the West Covina population demographics in terms of ethnicity, which I thought was really cool, a great touch. Um, they, they're really conscious of that and they do a, a, a pretty good job as far as diversity goes. So um, after the song is over, she pours her meds down the drain, humming West Covina. And I, you know, you can definitely, you see her so hopeful. She thinks maybe I don't have to be on medication anymore. Maybe I changed my external circumstances and I'm going to live a much happier life. So it, as misguided as it is, you know, you, you do sympathize with her and you do kind of wish it could be true, um, even though we know that's the road is a lot harder than that. Uh, we also learned that she had an aunt, Aunt Nancy, who was apoplectic after Rebecca's suicide attempt, um, which either means extremely angry or associated with having a stroke. And uh, Naomi also says that Aunt Nancy is sick all the time. So I like to kind of pay attention to these little bits and pieces of information that we don't realize we're getting because they're not directly associated with the storyline, but um, you never know when those things come back in, especially with Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. They like to drop in little details and bring them or pick them back up later. Of course, what Rebecca texts Josh is the exact thing she later texts her father when he arrives for her wedding, uh, right down to the buzz bee emoticon. Um, and Rebecca gets so excited when she hears her phone go off, um, but it's just a text about a new data usage plan. Uh, that really made me laugh the first time I saw it. Um, how many of us have been there? Uh, texting is how we communicate for better or worse in a lot of ways. And, uh, you know, when you're waiting for something important or to hear back from somebody, uh, that, that was a great scene. Uh, and Aline says a big part of our pitch for the show was that now if, you're obsessed with someone you can't get away from them uh, because of social media and how much it's changed our lives basically and that's really true i actually i know people who have had anxiety and it's made so much worse by the fact that every time they go on their facebook they have to see stuff in their feed that makes them upset um, either having to do with a past relationship or whatever kind of drama is going on. Um, even if it's not directly in their feed, 
they can probably find a spot on the web where they can get the information or see what's going on with somebody. And uh, I, I definitely know people who have had to just completely disconnect and get off all the social media and that it was recommended to them because it was spiking their anxiety so much. And, you know, it's just really sad because there's some positive things to social media. You do, um, you get a lot of invites to events and um, see what's going on with friends and, and uh, you know, a lot of the socializing does go on there. And so then you kind of feel even more excluded because um, you're missing some of that stuff. But, I, I definitely have seen that happen to people and trying to find a balance can be really challenging. So after that, Rebecca, we see Rebecca go into work at uh, Whitefeather, the law firm, and uh, she has a, a longer conversation with Daryl. And uh, you can see right off the bat that Rebecca and Daryl uh, really do have a lot of things in common. Um, even though Rebecca maybe wants to disassociate herself from Daryl, um, they're both overshares and overenthusiastic. They both lack appropriate boundaries at work. Uh, they're both awkward and lonely, uh, but but very sympathetic characters. In, during the commentary at this part, we learned that Pete Gardner coached Tina Fey's improv group in Chicago. Uh, and I would say Pete Gardner definitely seems like a Midwesterner to me. Um, uh, I'm a Midwesterner myself, and he definitely has that vibe. There's something about him, um, but. I really like it. That was nice to see. And we also learn from Rebecca's resume, we learn here that she went to both Harvard and Yale. They dropped that in really early. Um, and we also learn that she speaks Mandarin, according to her resume. Um, it's so interesting to me that she learned to speak Mandarin since Josh Chan was originally supposed to be Josh Chang. Uh, he was uh, going to be a Chinese character uh, instead of Filipino but they changed it when they cast Finney. I'm wondering if Josh Chang would have also spoken Chinese and Rebecca learned it because she associated it with him. Possible. Uh, we also meet Paula here with her pea necklace and her turtle necklace. Uh, Paula is immediately suspicious of Rebecca's motives. She's very sharp. My best friend, Daisy, the one who reminds me of Paula so much, um, she was very intuitive like that as well. Rebecca assumes Paula is her assistant instead of the head paralegal. And you can tell this isn't the first time that Paula was mistaken for something less than she is. Uh, when she makes the comment, two years of training, six months of night school, and 15 years of experience, but never mind. <laughs> um, Paula also makes comments about Rebecca's designer shoes. Um, which is funny because we know from later episodes that Paula secretly craves that life, um, living in the big city, getting a taste of what she views as the sophisticated life. Um, she exp especially expresses this during uh, her time with Calvin um, when she thinks his status is preferred. So, um, you know, her, her comments about Rebecca's shoes and all that, it, you know, she, she is a little bit, she, she does a little bit of jealousy or wishes she could have those things too. Uh, did you guys catch that Mrs. Hernandez is Whitefeather's communications director? Uh, this is a great hidden joke since Mrs. Hernandez is entirely silent from Rebecca's perspective for a large portion of the show. So that was a, a cute thing. She's walking into Daryl's office and um, 
Rebecca has bare legs in a skirt. She isn't wearing nylons like she was in New York. Um, I think her mother even comments on this later. Uh, she's still got a blazer on, but the rest of her outfit is business casual. So um, you can see Rebecca gradually making her transition from New York dress to California dress. Uh, they're really, they really pay a lot of attention to detail, which I like. So Daryl is oversharing with Rebecca here and um, about his divorce. And when Daryl says he can't lose her, Rebecca thinks he's talking about his wife and says, you know, there's other fish in the sea, right? It's not healthy to keep fixating on one person. The relationship's over. Um, you know, so ironic because of course she's doing this exact same thing, but projects it onto Daryl giving him the advice she can't give herself. Um, it's not the last time that Rebecca will recognize herself in Daryl and disassociate herself from it, as Daryl later does with Maya. In addition to the Native American decor, we also see Daryl has a decanter with alcohol in his office, a la Mad Men. So he's clearly not doing great. Um, I, I wouldn't necessarily expect that from Daryl, but there it is. <laughs> so. Um, Daryl also says a lot of non-PC things here at first, but in my opinion, it's from genuine ignorance, not ill intent. He's starting to belatedly recognize when he's stereotyping, but sometimes things come out before he thinks them through. He really doesn't want to offend anyone or hurt people's feelings, which, you know, I think is really sweet. Uh, it, it really just comes from uh, a little bit of ignorance or he hasn't had to deal with that as much. After this, we go to home base, and home base is actually a place called Big League Dreams in real life. Uh, it is in West Covina, and Aline in the commentary says that Big League, League Dreams was built on a landfill in real life, and they have like a slogan that's from landfill to landmark. Uh, so I thought that was kind of cute since I did visit there. You see Greg is dressed on a plain black t-shirt, a nod to his depressive state, and Aline said that Mark Webb, the director, added some of Greg's sarcastic and self-loathing lines in the first Greg scene. I can definitely see Mark Webb's signature on that, but he kind of sh helped shape the character um, with, with some of those lines. You can tell Greg knows what he's doing when he tells Rebecca that Josh will be at Bean's house party the next night, and he's also going and asks if she wants to go. He sort of sides at himself for using her obvious interest in Josh to get a date with her. Uh, he He's definitely aware of how he's manipulating the situation. Greg acknowledges that women who ignore him are his type, but additionally, especially in the beach episode, we see that Greg feels competitive with Josh, like he can never be as charming or sought after as his best friend. So it would make sense that he'd feel compelled to win over a smart, pretty woman who's into Josh. As much chemistry as Greg and Rebecca have together, they do both have other motives for dating each other, along with eventual genuine interest. At this point in the narrative, I saw Greg as one of those guys who would be a good boyfriend for the most part, but isn't typically desired by most women. He somehow gets overlooked for flashier candidates, and this has created some underlying resentment towards women in him. Greg wants Rebecca, but also harbors resentment towards her, not just because of her response towards him, but in how she's representative of so many women's responses towards him. 
Greg often uses demeaning insults to put women down in an attempt to equalize the playing field and feel better about himself. Additionally, this makes him feel more alpha and more in control of the situation, but the woman may find this behavior unappealing and break up with him, or at best, she may find it confusing and temper her own emotions somewhat, or become overly clingy and insecure. None of this really lays a stable foundation for a long-term relationship, leaving Greg disappointed over and over again. Add this to his commitment issues, and you've got a vicious cycle. On a personal note, I've dealt with one too many guys who remained hopeful and interested even when I was clear that I didn't feel the same way. And for me personally, that's not as that's not flattering so much as it makes me uncomfortable. So while I liked Greg as a character, I found him a little passive aggressive in the beginning, and I didn't immediately root for him and Rebecca to get together as that seemed like too much of a tired trope. Um, I'll discuss this more during the Taco Festival episode, but um, my opinion on it ebbed and flowed over time as I saw more episodes, uh, and I'll continue to discuss it throughout the podcast uh, as it changed. The next day at the office, uh, Paula is wearing an outfit that's actually quite similar to Rebecca's the day before. She's wearing a reddish cardigan instead of a reddish blazer, and the skirt is the same colors and general pattern, red, black, and white. Uh, albeit not as short as Rebecca's was. So I don't know if that was intentional or not, but it does seem like she's kind of sort of dressing like her a little bit. Um, Rebecca says to her, ever just have like a great day? And Paula has this amazing expression on her face and she's just like, no. <laughs> um, it's so sad uh, and so funny, but so realistic. Um, this too reminds me a lot of my best friend Daisy and how she was at her job. Um, she was the best person, um, but she had a hard life and deserved so much better. Um, you know, I definitely sympathize with Paula here. In the commentary too, Rachel uh, talks about how she and Donna Lynn Champlin are second cousins by marriage. Uh, they found it out after she was cast. So that's ironic. I mean, you know, I don't even know if it's an LA thing or if it's um, just strange coincidence, but I do think it's cool that they're actually related. So then we get into the Sexy Getting Ready song, which I still think is one of the best songs they've ever done. It's uh, it's so funny and it's it's perfect social commentary. You see Rebecca doing a lot of things here. She's uh, plucking eyebrows and nose hairs. Um, She's buffing her feet. Her backup singers are singing Bye Bye Skin. Uh, she's trying to get into a body shaper, um, putting eyeliner on her waterline. Uh, she's using a machine on her face. I, I feel like we talked about what this was, but I, I don't remember. Uh, that was not one I'm even familiar with. She's curling her eyelashes, which is definitely really painful, um, and burned her neck with a curling iron. Um, and of course, she uh, infamously waxes her asshole and um, sprays as her backup singer's croon ass blood. I somehow didn't hear this line at first. Um, there was so much going on, uh, but I, I saw it when reading the lyrics or when I rewatched it and just died laughing. That's probably the first time that phrase has ever been used in a song. Um, you know, Rachel is so brave, um, but that's also 
so much her humor. So it was awesome. Um, it's, <laughs> uh, they, they really didn't hold back on that one. And the line, let's see how the guys get ready. And Greg's asleep on the couch and jeans in a t-shirt. Um, I'm sure that's not true for everybody, but I think on the whole, it's likely that girls, you know, are going to have to take longer to get ready. And, um, you know, that's probably more common. Um, I'm sure there are things guys do that maybe we're not as aware of. Um, and, you know, tell us what they are. But uh, yeah, there, there's a lot of rituals that girls have in the bathroom. So then you see Nipsey Hussle, the rapper, come in and say, this is some nasty ass patriarchal bullshit. I got to go apologize to some bitches. It was so funny. Um, so true. And um, the whole ritual in the bathroom or getting ready, um, it can be so necessary um, in our culture. My experience with, with this was kind of on both sides. Um, when I was growing up, my mom um, kind of promoted the, the natural look. And so my sister and I grew up, you know, not wearing any makeup. And I just had like straight hair, you know, and I left it long. So I didn't even need to cut it that much. I, I mean, we other than cost cutters occasionally to get my bangs trimmed, I didn't go to the salon until I was like, maybe like 26. I mean, it was a long time um, before I actually ever set foot in the salon. And and same with makeup. I, I don't think I started using makeup until I was like 21. All through high school, didn't use it. Um, but my mom had this kind of perspective that, you know, natural is better and that using um, beauty products is fake or superficial or that it indicates like the kind of person that you are, which really didn't make sense because she wore makeup and she was never super into it, but she wore like the basic adult makeup and, um, you know, she did curl her hair. Um, but she was never really into appearances at all. Um, and so I kind of grew up with that association. And then um, I started to question it when like, I like, take a school picture and be like, oh, I look great. I look fine. And then I would get it back and I'd be like, oh, is that how I really look? <laughs> you know? And I'd be like, oh, well, I wish I could fix this or I wish I could do that. And you know, um, it wasn't really an insecurity thing. It was just like, a, oh, you know, I mean, there's so many ways I could improve this a little bit, but it wasn't until, you know, my twenties that I really started um, looking into those things and finding out what was possible. And, you know, I, I just did like a couple things and it made a huge difference. Like I felt like my hair was kind of too many different colors in places um and i just wanted to kind of even even it out and make it the same color so um it just made a huge difference i i got the exact shade i wanted and wore just a, a little bit of makeup lip gloss and foundation and stuff and i liked how i looked so much better um you know it wasn't like i was losing something about my essential character but that was kind of how my mom and sister reacted to it which was really interesting 
Um, I remember having a whole conversation with my sister about how she felt like I changed, not because of my behavior in any other way than the fact that I was using beauty products now and going to the salon and that it almost made them view me like it was a trope, like I was, you know, becoming a popular girl or becoming superficial or something like that, whereas nothing in my life had actually changed other than that. I still had the same friends. I was still acting the exact same way. Um, but it was really interesting that they almost had a stereotype the other way. And it felt weird to de be defending the, the beauty side of things. But the more I thought about it, the more I was like, you know, this really, this really is a two-way street. I'm doing a couple things to improve my appearance. I like how I look better. I'm glad I did this. You know, as long as it's it's balanced, it you know it can be positive and it can help with self-esteem. Um, but at the same time, in a lot of cases, girls really do have to try hard physically and take a while to fix themselves up in the morning because they legitimately wouldn't be able to hold their own with uh, guys and relationships without it guys would find other girls more attractive or they just wouldn't find them very attractive if they didn't put the time in, in a lot of cases. At the same time, that's also maybe what guys are naturally attracted to and can't entirely help it. So I'm not necessarily putting this all on them either. Um, you know, what you're attracted to is kind of just a natural response. And I still think it is way more common to see like an average looking guy with a good looking girl rather than the other way around. Um, and that guys maybe haven't set the bar as high looks wise. So other guys don't have to go as out of their way to compete. But I also think that they struggle with it too. I'm sure that there are guys who had criticisms of their appearance and wanted to change it or fix it or help it in some way, or I felt like they had to spend time on it. Um, it's, you know, like I said, probably more prevalent with females, but I'm sure it's not just women who feel that way. And then Rebecca spends all this time getting ready and Josh isn't even at the party. <laughs> and that is something that I think does happen to a lot of people. Um, you know, there's almost like more resentment and frustration at him not being there in part because she spent so much time fixing herself up. She needed to be ready for anything, which meant that she ran the risk of being ready for nothing. So there's there's really a lot to unpack there. And the, the song does such a great job of conveying that in like a couple minutes. It's, it's amazing. I love it. Um, and the response online is great too. Um, on Rachel's YouTube channel, you see people finding it randomly who don't even watch the show. And it, it definitely sparked a lot in people. So now we're at the party, we're at Beans' party. Um, you hear Greg mention that he got accepted into business school at Emory, but then his dad got sick. And he says, Greg says about Josh that he's a good looking guy. He knows magic. <laughs> and uh, in the commentary, they say they, they threw that in for Josh's character because Vinny does magic and is really into it. And then Greg says about Josh's text that his girlfriend's making him go to her sister's quinceanera. Um, first of all, this means Valencia has a sister, which, you know, hasn't really been brought up very often. 
Rebecca says to Greg that Facebook says Josh is single and Greg tells her that they dated in high school and that he moved back to be with her. First of all, that's not what Josh said to Rebecca in New York at all. Uh, he talked about West Covina being chill and laid back to things Valencia is not. <laughs> he never mentioned a girl and didn't give that as a reason for moving back home. So he's already presented himself to Rebecca in a way that hid things he didn't necessarily want to advertise. Likewise, Josh hid his past relationship with Rebecca from Valencia. Um, and his, if his Facebook status says he's single, he's presenting himself inaccurately to his casual friends and acquaintances too. So you do see this thing where it's not exactly a direct lie, but there's a lot of omissions and that Josh, you know Josh is obsessed with social media. You know that he's on Instagram all the time. He's posting pictures, he's posting video. Um, he's conscious of his social media presence and he's conscious of how he's presenting himself to the world. Um, you know, he wanted to flirt with Rebecca, so he didn't mention his girlfriend. Um, he didn't want Valencia to get mad at what was going on when they were on a break, so he never mentioned Rebecca. I definitely have seen people do this. I, I feel like saying especially guys, but that's probably just my own experience. But it's so frustrating. You know, it's like they're trying to get off in a technicality kind of, you know, without saying it. So there's just a lot of things that frustrated me about Josh from the beginning, but I do think he's so well written as a character. And uh, Vincent Rodriguez III does an excellent job playing him. He's He's great at making Josh likable um, and charming in some places, but also, you know, kind of frustrating and very realistic in, in other places. Um, so I love his portrayal of Josh. I'm, I'm a huge fan of how they wrote the character, even if what he's doing frustrates me. It, he is a great character. When Rebecca has to go off with Paula and Greg says, I'll wait. Um, when they're outside at the party. Um, apparently, according to the commentary, they originally cut back to Santino a little later, and he says, I'll have a beer and some lotion after the scene with Rebecca in the bedroom. Um, and I guess Santino improvised that line. So unfortunately it got cut, but I love hearing what they in improvise. When Paula talks to Rebecca, she says, uh, you you checked Josh's Facebook 63 times today and his Instagram 18 times. Um, and, and that made me laugh a lot, too, because I do think that's a really common one, the addiction of social media and the effect it has on anxiety. You know, it's it's almost compulsive, like somebody playing a, a slot machine or something, you're just clicking and clicking and clicking and having trouble concentrating and getting work done. And it's definitely something that happens a lot. Um, Rebecca also mentions that she left a job that would have paid her $545,000 a year. And I was like, seriously, is this how much lawyers make? That just seemed astronomical. But I guess, you know, it's New York too. So, but then when Rebecca's talking to Paula, she says, I'm not crazy. I'm not crazy. Oh my God, I'm crazy. So like right from the beginning, you see, you know, she's worried about it. She doesn't want to be called crazy. She's trying to convince herself she's not crazy. She, she That's definitely a fear for her. Um, and then Paula says, you're not crazy, you're in love. And that is totally different, which is, you know, obviously a little bit debatable. I mean, it does kind of refer back to the 
you know, the fact that love is addiction, um, that that's the way it works in the brain, like being addicted to drugs or anything else, the, the same circuits fire. And that in the early days, that's exactly how it feels. She also says to Rebecca, I would be proud to be your friend now that I know the truth. What you did for love, for true love, the sacrifices, the money that you walked away from, you're not crazy and you're not stupid. You know what you are? You're brave. And I wish that I had been as brave when I was your age. I'm here now. You're not in this alone and I will help you. She even tears up. Jonalyn does an amazing job in this scene. Um, she's so supportive and she highlights Rebecca's courage in following her dream, putting love above money. Um, she does a great job of consoling her and she's just like the friend you always wanted. It's, it's such a great scene. And then when Paula hears that Josh has a girlfriend, her response is no, no, no. His Facebook status says he's single. And if he was into her, why would it say that? And Rebecca's like, that's what I said. Um, and this exchange really reminds me of Daisy, my best friend too, um, you know, being so invested in what's going on with someone she cares about um, and, and noticing all these little details with her. Um, you know, it's, it's great. Uh, and Re Rachel says that Rebecca and Paula's relationship is based off of her and Aline's relationship, which, you know, it, it really brings the show together to have two co-creators that are that close and that get each other so well. So Josh texts at this point and Rebecca has that great line, are you a witch? Because Paula called it. But that's such a great moment. That's really what it feels like when you get, you know, like a crucial text or something that you've been waiting for like that. Um, she's getting to take the next step towards something she wants that much. Uh, when it hardly ever happens in her life, when she hardly ever gets the opportunity. So, you know, one little thing, and it's it's such a small thing, which is kind of like why you have to laugh about it. But at the same time, that one little thing could mean everything. And it's the hope that makes her so happy. It is dangerous. I have a lot of feelings about hope versus happiness. You know, a lot of the time, sometimes that rush of feelings that hot that adrenaline high a lot of the time it's hope not happiness and it, it can be surprisingly hard to tell the difference unless you pay attention to it rebecca may think oh my gosh i just got this text from josh i'm so happy but is it really happiness or is it hopefulness that this text and this dinner is going to lead to something that will make her happy in the future that is a crucial difference to me. Um, she's, if, if she gets any residual happiness from it, it, it's coming from the hope or the expectation or anticipation that they're going to be a couple in the future and that's going to make her happy. It's very indirect. It's, it's not direct happiness. And so relying on hope to make you happy is definitely a slippery slope sometimes you have to do it because that's all you have but i yeah i i don't <laughs> people see hope as a positive word and i know for me that's one of those words that 
I feel like it's a wolf in sheep's clothing kind of um, in a lot of cases. So when Paula and Rebecca are singing uh, the West Covina uh, reprise, they mention all these couples. Uh, Paula's singing about Bella and Edward from Twilight, Carrie and Big from Sex and the City, Harry and Sally from When Harry Met Sally, the movie, um, Julia Roberts and Richard Gere, uh, who are in Pretty Woman and Runaway Bride together. I think it's interesting that it's Runaway Bride too, because we later learn that Paula ran from the altar, but came back. And also all the couples mentioned are possibly compelling to some, but problematic relationships from my understanding. I can speak to the first two, but it's been a while since I've seen When Harry Met Sally or Pretty Woman. I don't think I've ever seen Runaway Bride, but I believe it's it's that type of relationship that Paula really likes, um, that's really intense and romantic, but also problematic in some ways. When Rebecca and Paula are holding hands and singing that duet, um, they're panning around the circle and the dancers behind them, they actually have a same sex couple dancing. Um, they're, they're one of the couples behind them. So that's pretty cool. Uh, and then Paula asks Rebecca if she wants to go drive by Josh's house. And Rebecca's like, you know where he lives? This reminded me of Daisy too. Um, my best friend, she, she was so good at finding out things like even before I did, um, despite not even living in the same state as me. Uh, she was intuitive, amazing at research of all kinds. You know, I just had complete unconditional support, investment and loyalty from her. And Paula and Rebecca's relationship is, is it just encapsulates that kind of thing so well. Um, Rebecca feels understood by Paula. That's kind of why I'm surprised she doesn't tell her more and keep secrets from her. I know I was 100% open with Daisy. She knew everything and vice versa. Um, while the codependent aspect of Rebecca and Paula's friendship does come out more at different times in the series, I have to say that I still get a warm feeling at them becoming friends here and bonding over a shared goal or dream. Daisy and I were always very independent people, so we weren't too prone to codependency, but the loyalty, trust, and interest we took in each other's lives was huge. It's a very rare kind of friendship, and I love seeing it portrayed in, in Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. As far as Rebecca's dream of Josh and true love, I understand why she dreams of these things, even if they're unrealistic. Our society has ceased to recognize the nuance between pursuing unrealistic expectations and acknowledging what we truly dream of most, regardless of how unrealistic it is. In my opinion, it isn't lame or stupid of Rebecca to want a love story with magical moments, thrilling synchronicities, and a happy ending. Even if it's unrealistic or unlikely to happen in the way she wants it to, it doesn't mean the dream itself is something to be criticized and put down. The dream goes well beyond individual people like Josh. It encompasses Rebecca's desire for a secure, loving relationship between equals. Wanting life to be like a musical and actually expecting it to be are two very different things. Honestly, acknowledging a deep desire for something that might never happen is one of the bravest things you can do. In my opinion, too often contemporary society throws the baby out with the bathwater, not only scoffing at romantic comedies as unrealistic, which they often are, but dismissing the wish for these things altogether without recognizing and acknowledging the deeper longing underneath. 
And if a person does realize his or her dream is unlikely to happen, but still has the longing, that's even more painful to admit. Rebecca has trouble acknowledging how she truly feels at first, even to herself, but Paula eventually gets her to that point. So that's the end of the first episode. And now I'd like to move to uh, the special segments of the podcast. The first one's whodunit. Basically, the whodunit segment is how many times, counting how many times Rebecca initiates plans um, to move towards Josh and that type of thing. And how many times does Paula instigate them? Um, this may be more of a thing in, in say, first season or, or a little bit in second season. It, you know, it may not continue throughout the entire show, but I, I was really curious to kind of go back and pay attention to that because sometimes Rebecca almost maybe would have either given up or kind of hit a brick wall where she wasn't sure what to do next. And then Paula will like find something out or structure something or come up with a plan and um, they're off and rolling again. This one, of course, we're, we're just meeting they're, they're just becoming friends right now. So a lot of it is Rebecca in this episode. First, Rebecca initiates talking to Josh on the street in New York. He didn't see her before that. Rebecca moves to West Covino when she learns Josh is moving back. Huge one. Thirdly, in a more passive sense, Rebecca takes advantage of Greg's invitation to Beans's party when he offers it because she believes Josh will be there. And then in contrast, um, Rebecca's about to give up on Josh when Paula convinces her that she can help. So running tally, Rebecca three, Paula one. The next segment is Ring of Fire. Uh, supposedly there's a fire reference every episode, um, at least up until the big reveal about um, Rebecca setting the fire in Robert's place. So I was going to try to see if I could pick out a fire reference every episode and see if that's true. There's one little one in here, and I definitely missed it. It's She's kind of rambling, so I, I didn't really, I actually had the closed captioning on, and that's how I caught it. Um, in the beginning, when Rebecca's in New York and she's having the anxiety attack outside, um, she's trying to decide if she should take her anxiety pills, and she's kind of talking to herself and saying, uh, in case of emergency, in case of emergency, break glass in case of emergency. And and that break glass in case of emergency is what's written on fire extinguisher cases. So deep cut with that one. That was a really subtle but uh, but key fire reference in the first episode. So the next segment is Suicide Watch. Um, we know now that Rebecca attempts suicide in third season and they really do throw a lot of hints in about it. Um, there's some obvious ones, um, and then there's maybe some not so obvious ones, but it definitely comes up a lot. So I did want to kind of note those as uh, we're, we're rewatching the, the series. So in this episode, 16-year-old Rebecca says to Josh about her mother, she wasn't even going to let me go here, but then I called my dad on his honeymoon in the Bahamas, and I told him I was having suicidal thoughts. So ta-da, here I am. Like I said, that's within the first minute of the episode. It's out there. And you also hear Naomi on the phone, of course. Um, when Rebecca moves to her apartment in West Covina, she, Naomi says, I hope this isn't another stunt like your little suicide attempt in law school. You didn't even break your skin and you inconvenienced a lot of people. 
and of course Naomi's always covering these things up with anger I mean she was obviously really upset about it and worried about Rebecca but a lot of the time she expresses that fear through anger the next segment is booze clues um, basically going back and looking to see how many clues there are about Greg being an alcoholic that's something that I know I didn't catch it on the first round when they talked about Greg being an alcoholic I had to think about it and then when I did think about it I'm like oh yeah they they do a great job in that little segment during the reveal of showing lots of moments when when there were hints of it but as Rachel and Aline said there's actually a ton more throughout the series and they couldn't fit them all in so I was kind of wanting to go back and look at that and um there really isn't much in this episode at all, um, nothing concrete. You see Greg drinking out of a red plastic cup at Beans' party, but nothing excessive. I mean, we assume it's alcohol. We don't even really know uh, for sure, but I, I don't see any any obvious one um, other than he's having a drink at a party like, you know, like anyone would. The Nailed It segment um, addresses what Rachel said about there's secret symbolism in the the color of the nail polish she wears which they're down to the detail on this um I, and i want to say that when rachel was talking about it elaine didn't even know but rachel and i don't know if it was the costume designer or whoever gets her ready she and somebody else who works on the show were um conscious of trying to make sure that rachel's or rebecca's nail polish color would kind of match her mood or send a, a message based on how she's feeling. So um, in this episode, you see Rebecca with no nail polish a lot um, at Camp Canyon Grove when she's supposed to be 16. She's not wearing any nail polish. That makes sense because she's younger. And um, in her New York apartment, no nail polish. And at the New York law firm, no nail polish. Then we get the most dramatic nail polish I've ever seen Rebecca wear. Um, she's got long fake nails with iridescent sparkles and pink and red tips when she arrives in West Covina and sings the song. Then we go back to no nail polish when she's sitting at home in her apartment in West Covina, texting Josh and waiting for him to text back. She's feeling really low. She's got no makeup on and oversized pajamas. She doesn't wear nail polish for her first day at White Feather. It's probably not that important to her, really. And she's not wearing nail polish when she goes from there to home base with Greg. Uh, then she's got long fake nails with gold sparkles on during the imaginary music video part of the Sexy Get Ready song. Ironically, she still has no nail, nail polish on in her actual bathroom, but in her mind, she's got this great nail polish on in the fake music video. <laughs> so that was a nice touch. And then she's back to no nail polish when she's at Beans' party in the pink dress, surprisingly. I would have expected her to have nail polish here. I think it's possible that because this was filmed for the Showtime pilot, um, it's possible Rachel didn't consciously start the nail polish thing until the show was accepted by the CW. I don't know for sure, but I did think that this was one of those moments when I, I thought I would see her wear it when she's going to a party expecting to see Josh and she's in this pretty pink dress so we'll we'll see how it goes as we go along um and if if they really got it every episode the next section 
I don't have a creative name for it yet, but basically it's looking at um, what the songs are parodying and um, whether it's something, a song that it's based on or a song that they're inspired by. Um, I like to kind of try to find out where that's coming from. Sometimes it's a in a direct song. It's one particular song that they're spoofing, and sometimes it's more of a genre. So the first song we get in this episode is West Covina, written by Rachel Bloom and Jerome uh, Kurtenbach. I will probably butcher some of these names. I apologize. Um, so the way Rachel describes it is that this is the trope of a musical number that you see in so many musicals where a character comes in and just singing, here I am in New York or some other big city that they're so excited to be in, but she's placing it in uh, a mundane location like West Covina, which is special because the person she loves is there. Um, and yet it's maybe nothing to write home about in other ways. So uh, that, that was a great concept that worked really well. And then the second one is Sex Again Ready Song, of course, written by Rachel Bloom, Jack Dolgen, and Mike Geyer. The way Rachel describes this is she's talking more about the trope of music videos that show women with flawless hair, clothes, and makeup, or even the theoretical imaginary sexiness of getting ready in a corset or undergarments or whatever. Um, you know, somebody putting lipstick on, something that's, you know, like a really appealing ritual when the real process can be painful, tedious, and at its worst, as Nipsey Hussle says, horrifying. So I, I don't think there was a specific song she had in mind, but um, it's kind of playing on that trope. And there's also an explicit version of this song on Rachel's YouTube, Spotify, and other places. So check that out if you haven't seen it. I like to look at the theme of the episode to kind of tie it all together. Um, in this one, there were, there were several big themes. Um, there's the question of how do you strive for happiness when you have anxiety and depression? What would truly make you happy and how can you figure it out when it's different for everyone? And then there's also the issue that what you think would make you happy might not actually make you happy. Um, it makes me think of the musical Wicked and the line, happy is what happens when all your dreams come true, isn't it? Rebecca feels like that both when she gets offered the junior partner position and also much later when Josh becomes her boyfriend. Both things she worked really hard for and they don't always make her happy or at least not in the way that she expected. Um, and going along with that, another theme is expectations versus reality. She has expectations of visiting Josh um, after they leave camp. Uh, she has expectations of uh, what it will feel like when she makes junior partner. Um, Rebecca has expectations of West Covina as a town. Um, she has expectations of Josh's situation and uh, potential behavior towards her when she moves to his town. So all these expectations are, are kind of crushed in the reality of things. Um, that's definitely a, a big theme. And then the third theme that we see a lot is rejection in this episode, both Josh rejecting Rebecca and Greg feeling rejected by Rebecca. I'd like to do a poll question um, for listeners. I have a feeling it'll take a while to actually get this going as, you know, starting a new podcast. I, I don't know that there's, you know, how many listeners there'll actually be, but um, over time, um, 
I'd like to try to do poll questions and post on social media. Um, so this will be up on the social media accounts that let me do polls. My poll question for this episode is, which way do you generally see the world? A, only two hours from the beach. B, we're four hours from the beach. Some people say two, but those people are dumb. Or C, I wish we could say we're two hours from the beach, but realistically we're three, sometimes four on a bad day. So um, which way do you see the world? I have a few discussion questions um, that I'd love to hear from listeners on. Um, posting on social media or, you know, writing in a message. Um, please let me know if you don't want me to share it on the podcast. In general, if you're uh, commenting or sending messages, I, I would assume that it's okay to share. Um, so please let me know if you don't want me to uh, read it on the podcast. I probably won't be sharing everything, but, you know, if, if there's a few comments or that stand out, uh, I will, I will bring those up. So um, the discussion questions I had for this episode, what in your life looked good on paper or was something you thought you wanted, but turned out to be a disappointment or not what you expected? Did anything have the opposite impact? You thought it was going to be horrible, but it actually worked out great. Second question, how did your parents' control or lack thereof affect the way you developed as a person? You see how much it affects Rebecca um, and, and, and with other characters too, um, like Greg and his mom. And the third discussion question is, how do you get ready for a special night? Is your experience similar to the Sex the Getting Ready song, regardless of whether you're male, female, or genderless? I think people have a lot of opinions about that, and I, I definitely love to hear from you on, on what you thought. So please rate and review. Uh, it helps other people find the Team West Covina podcast. And you can reach out to the podcast or start discussions on Facebook at facebook.com slash Team West Covina, Twitter at Team West Covina, or Instagram under Team West Covina. So I know personal stories about why we relate to the show or comparing it to our own lives is not everybody's cup of tea. So if you don't plan to join us for a Copian's Corner, thanks for listening. For those of you who are still here, um, A Copian's Corner is a segment where I would like to um, kind of explore what Crazy Ex-Girlfriend means to us, how we relate it to our own lives and things that have happened to us. And I'd really love to hear from listeners as well um, if there's something in an episode that really spoke to you, uh, as well as any general comments you might have. Um, I'd like to share them here. Um, so for this episode, what it made me think of uh, in my life is I too moved to another city much bigger than my hometown although not for a guy, for a job and the chance at more opportunities in every aspect of my life. It was to find a local group of friends, more opportunities to take part in specific events and groups that were tailored to um, uh, specialty interests. And also the chance to meet more people, different kinds of people than I could ever meet in my hometown. Um, and hopefully, you know, fulfill my dream of having a boyfriend. Even with all the people I met, I only met one new person I eventually became interested in after years of being friends. To have that long and involved story go the route of Rebecca and Josh in a very loosely adapted way was pretty devastating after all the hard work, patience, and understanding that went into that relationship and all the good memories we had together. One of the reasons I relate to Rebecca is because I'm either demisexual or something in that vein. Basically, I'm very, very rarely attracted to anyone and might go years without feeling it for anyone new at all. 
not by choice. So my interest in a particular person and no one else doesn't come from a place of obsession, but is a consequence of chemistry or biology. Although our reasons for concentrating on one person romantically are different, I can understand how hard it is for Rebecca to deal with those feelings. The only time I found all those components in one person in a way that could endure uh, was when I met the guy in my new city. For almost my entire life, I've been in the position of actively wanting a sexual and romantic relationship, but hardly ever meeting anyone I'd want to cast in that role. So when it does happen, when I do meet someone I'm attracted to and have genuine feelings for, it's one of the only chances I'll have to make it work out. Uh, like Rebecca, I get what it's like to be motivated and passionate about developing a happy relationship. Um, so that's kind of how I related to her in the first episode. Um, I'd love to hear what you think. Thanks so much for listening. Um, I really appreciate it, and we'll see you next time. My